What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from the Globe after the trading deadline has concluded, it is Chad Finn. Chad, how are you, man? I'm good, man. Doing my uh, Luis Urias research, trying to remember when he was good <laughs> two years ago. Yeah, I'm queuing the duck boats now that he's part of this picture here. You look at it, he did hit 23 home runs a couple of years ago. So in all seriousness, I don't really mind adding a guy like this. Their second base position has not really been reliable from the plate or like when Valdez was up earlier one of the worst fielding second baseman you'll see in major (laughs) league baseball and we saw a turner on Monday night dealing with the bruise now I don't really want him playing in the field not because I don't think he's good enough to do it he had a nice play the other day but his bat is so important to this team he has the most RBIs in baseball since the start of June so it's worth a flyer I mean I don't mind that's not like my big picture takeaway from the trading deadline but it's certainly I mean it's worth a flyer I would have preferred somebody like Tommy Edmond but obviously the Cardinals didn't move him that's a guy that's been an elite level defender in the past but I mean I didn't expect them to make a big move for a position player to begin with so I'm fine with Urias and look maybe he comes up and he catches fire and the Red Sox find something with his swing that Milwaukee couldn't find since 2021, or he was okay in 2022, but maybe they find something with his swing. So hopefully they get something out of him. But if not, I mean, no harm, no foul with that one. No, not at all. I mean, it's kind of funny. I had to look up to see if his uh, adjusted OPS was higher than Kike Hernandez's with the Red Sox. <laughs> um, 
I think it's a little bit lower. I forgot my research, but it's way better. Way better than Colton Wong has been for the Mariners, who there was a lot of smoke before the deadline that the Red Sox were trying to work out a trade uh, for him. He was hugging people in the Mariners clubhouse, and he's someone who's been a target of theirs in the past. But that didn't work out, which is good. He's sitting a buck forty-five, and uh, I know he has some some attributes as a defensive player, but. Uh, I like the Urias side. Urias idea better. I mean, 23 homers a couple of years ago. He walks. There's some upside there. Uh, so why not? But I think the disappointment, obviously, with Red Sox fans is just going to be that they didn't get a starting pitcher, which is their obvious need, uh, whether it's a guy who's under control for a little bit beyond this year or even a rental. I mean, Bloom talked about it. That uh, you don't, you know, we everybody was a rental was kind of his line and the Zoom call he did with the reporters afterwards. We didn't want to give up uh, the cost for a rental. Rentals can stick around. You can keep them beyond this year. I mean, it made me think, would he have done the deal in 2018 that sent Jalen Beeks the raise and, and brought Nate Evaldi here? And then they locked up Evaldi, uh, which ended up being an OK contract. Um you know, given uh, some ups and downs, but how well he pitched uh, at times after he signed that deal. I don't think Bloom ever makes that kind of trade. And it's the kind of trade that uh, the Red Sox can afford to make and should make. Or if there's a player they like out there who's going to be a free agent, trade for him, sell him on Boston, let him experience pitching at Fenway, and then maybe the guy sticks around. Yeah, it's a good point because even going back to 2021 when the Red Sox were one of the best teams in Major League Baseball at the trading deadline, they were in a situation where they get Schwarber. That was for Aldo Ramirez, the 20th overall prospect. And remember at the time, there was some frustration there because it was going to take Schwarber Delayed, a while. Yeah, yeah because yeah. he was dealing with the injury. So, And then from a pitching perspective, you added Hansel Robles and Austin Davis. So even then, you didn't really add a big piece when it looked like you had an opportunity that year, even if you weren't the favorite to win the World Series. We know they made it all the way to the ALCS. So I bet he wouldn't have made that move in 2018 either, because I'm sure he didn't want he wouldn't want to give Nathan Evaldi that type of money after the season like Dave Dombrowski did. But it is interesting going back to your point about the rentals, because so during his press conference, actually, the funniest thing he said, Chad, was... Oh, no. Julian, Julian McWilliams tweeted this out. We're <laughs> underdogs this year, and we tried to stay true to that. I don't know what the heck. Like, he's not. This is what I'll say, Chad, and you are the media critic. So he's not good in these press conference settings. Like, he's really not good at these. Right. Am I supposed to advise him now? <laughs> you can, can you give him some help? I mean. I can't, man. It's been a couple of years now, and it hasn't gotten any better. I mean, he's, he's a likable guy. Uh, I, I just, I, I don't think he knows how to navigate what Boston fans want to hear. Um, when him telling us this or that is going to be awesome. We want to see it. We don't want to hear about that in advance. Yeah. And I, I know, I mean, Bloom, he's good with the media when there's, it's not on a zoom camera or the TV lights or whatever, you know, in spring training, he was. He'd go out and have a beer with a beat, this beat writer or that beat writer. And some of that was damage control because I think he felt like his job was in trouble. Right. But uh, some of it was just he he wants to uh, make sure that the people covering the team understand what he's trying to do. And he will take time to explain that to you if it doesn't make sense right away. And I appreciate that. There have been times where I have no idea what he's thinking. I've gotten an explanation from somebody and it's like, okay, that makes sense in the long term. That makes sense. Um, but in these situations where maybe things haven't gone 
according to the way that Red Sox fans wanted them to go. The sports radio stations were demanding them to go. Um, that uh, he doesn't handle it very well, and he always tends to say things that can be uh, blown up as a quote and, and used for uh, five days of Felger's show. Yeah, no, that's certainly true. And I, I remember back to last year when he was talking about Schwarber, and he said that, it, to paraphrase, his, his point essentially was that missing on the diamonds in the rough bother him more than a guy like Kyle Schwarber going to a different team. And I understand the point that he was trying to make there. He just didn't, it didn't come across right. Like what he was trying to say is it hurts me more when me and my scouting department and my front office miss on a guy that has this talent that nobody else notices rather than a guy that everybody knows is good in the case of Kyle Schwarber. So I totally understand what he's saying. He just didn't actually word it well. So it came out wrong. And it's like, wait, wait, what do you mean? This guy (laughs) that nobody's ever heard of, you're more worried about him than Kyle Schwarber. But getting back to his point about the rentals. So he said... Ultimately, he was talking about, and he actually, for the first time ever, like put something out, uh, out there, not Dave Dombrowski style, but the closest he's ever been to Dave Dombrowski, where we've been hearing for a couple of weeks now that the one thing the Red Sox would want to do if they were adding a starter, they wanted it to be a controllable piece. They didn't want a rental, right? They wanted somebody with a couple of years left of team control. So right. he was asked about that, and he said, ultimately, we didn't end up with a match on any of those pieces. The rental market was more active. We talked about those guys, too. We didn't want to make a move just to make a move. He also said, we're ready to roll with this group, going back to some of the quotes that that seem weird. But he said, just because someone would be a great addition doesn't mean it was a good trade. So that brings me sort of to the rental part of this. So Michael Lorenzen goes from the Tigers to Dave Dombrowski and our old friends, or our old friend Dave Dombrowski and the Phillies. And to me... I can totally understand why they didn't want to do this. They gave up their fifth prospect in their organization for Lorenzen, a guy that could walk at the end of the season. And some of the numbers, 358 ERA, which is 24th of 74 starters to throw at least 100 innings, which is a fine number. But the hard hit rate is 37th of 74. The ground ball rate is 40th of 74. So mediocre when it comes to that. And the strikeout rate is 60th of 74. So I, I didn't mean to put the metric man hat on all of a sudden here on you, Chad. <laughs> but my point with that one is those numbers don't really compute. Like you could see this guy tailing off and I wouldn't give up my fifth prospect for that type of rental either. I would keep my powder drive for something in the offseason. The Montgomery deal is an interesting one because you get a lot of pieces involved in that one. And the Rangers gave up a couple of prospects for him and now if you look at where those guys are slotted in the Cardinals system because the Cardinals didn't have a great farm system those guys go into fourth and eighth in the Cardinals system now so the Rangers are really they were in a good position because they were in a position of strength in terms of the depth of their farm system and then the Flaherty one Flaherty goes to the Orioles and he basically goes for what was it their 16th and their 18th prospect but I, I got to imagine that the Red Sox don't like Flaherty because some There's of the not num- that much to like with him right now. Yeah, yeah, he's very inconsistent. Like he's been better as of late, but the walk rate is 11.1% or it was 11.1% prior to the last couple of outings that he's had. He's a super talented guy, but he's somebody that has consistently walked the ballpark. So I think what they looked at is they didn't like Flaherty. They probably didn't have the depth that the Rangers have in their farm system to make a move for a guy like Montgomery, and they may have said, Lorenzen, that's a crazy price for the fifth prospect. So I can understand why they didn't go after a rental. And the other part to that, and I think this is what they'll say, is, well, Pavetta's been really good for a long stretch now. We just put him into the rotation, right? And 
So they'll say, hey, we have Pavetta there. we rather roll with Pavetta because he's got another year of control next year, bring back Sale rather than giving up prospects for one of these other guys that we're not so sure if they're going to give us more than Pavetta is giving us right now. That's what I guess, that's what my idea is of their thought process in this whole thing. I think that's probably right. And I don't necessarily think it's a, a wrong approach by him. Uh, it just, the, the, the biggest issue is that that large, largest question about him still remains unanswered, which is when the time comes and there's high-end talent available that can either join your team in the off season or come over at the trade deadline, but you have to give up some of your precious prospect babies, will he do it? And I don't know if that trade was there right now. I mean, Dylan Cease uh, has a lot of uh, impressive achievements, numbers, you know, ton of strikeouts, but he's also a guy who walks a lot of people. He's 27, so he's right in his prime. Uh, I don't know if he's the pitcher I would have given up Raffaella and York and maybe something else to get here, assuming that uh, there was a large group of teams, a fairly large group of teams bidding for him and that the, the price was going to be pretty steep. But I want to see that in the offseason when you've had a, see, a, a year like this one where the important things have gone right. Yoshida's legit. Bayo's emerged as the number one starter or front end starter. Looks like he'll be a number one starter. Cassis has been a beast for a couple of months now. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Meyer uh, is higher on the prospect list now than he was to start the season. He's in double A. He might get there at the end of last year, like Bogarts did at the end of 13 and the next year, like Bogarts did at the end of 13. A lot of good things have happened. Uh, but he's going to have to add to that when they come into a season where people aren't looking at them and saying, well, if everything goes right, they might win 85 games. He needs to add to that before. Uh, next year, when people look at this roster and saying young talent emerged, uh, there's some decent uh, uh, proven help around them, but they need more. You got to go out and help this team, and you're not going to keep every one of these prospects on the major league roster. I want to see him make that trade. I don't think the time for that was now, but it's coming this off season. Yeah, the only guy to the control point that moved that had control is Savali goes from the Guardians to the Rays, and he's arbitration eligible in 24 and 25. So theoretically, this year and the next two, he goes to Cle uh, excuse me, he goes from Cleveland to Tampa as I mentioned, and this is a guy that since coming off the injured list, 247 ERA, 8th best, 106 whip, 16th. I know there are some questions about like, hey, where does he fit in a rotation, right? Is he more of a back-end guy or a front-end guy? There's been some injury history with him, and this may have just been the Guardians really like the prospect because they get Manzardo, Kyle Manzardo from Tampa, 37th overall right now in MLB Pipeline, and he's actually dealing with an injury right now, but this may be a situation where maybe the Red Sox weren't as high on Savali, and look, if that was a Nick York situation in terms of giving up, because it was a one-for-one, one, we don't really see this for a pitcher with that much control, so maybe it says something about Savali that it only costs a number one. Maybe it was something about the injury stuff that he's had in the past, or maybe it's just, hey, maybe he doesn't profile as a top end of the rotation guy, but I would always be wary of this. If I'm Cleveland giving up a guy to Tampa, I mean, we saw right. with Jeffrey Springs. Right. I mean, like Jeffrey Springs goes to Tampa. It's like, whoa, wait, this guy's good? Like he was terrible for the Red Sox. I would be concerned about that, but that's the only one that you can really ding him because to your point, Cease didn't get moved and Keller didn't get moved. So now it comes back to this is... You make a really good point that Bayo has emerged as that top end of the rotation guy, but then you look at the rest of it. So this question that we had at the deadline about starters, well, now 
in 2024, I guess now the rest of 2023 and beyond, you still have question marks, right? Because if you look at it, who knows what's going to happen with Paxton after this season? Chris yeah. Sale, we know that's an injury history situation where even this year where it looked like, oh, he's finally back to being Chris Sale or at least 85% of that guy. He's injured again. Tanner Houck has not proven himself as a member of the rotation, right? He's definitely a bullpen weapon. Garrett Whitlock, he can't stay healthy enough, and he had a 5-12 ERA in the rotation this season. Crawford has looked better as of late, but obviously his numbers are way better as a reliever than a starter. Now, I like Crawford, but still the point being is, to your original point about giving up his prospects, well, now this offseason, this is when he's going to have to do it, right? Because 2024, yep. that's sort of like the target, and maybe they're ahead of schedule. They get into the wild card this year, but that's when you need to start competing. Like, that's the time to do it, and... If you didn't do it at the trading deadline, which now that's over, you don't have the opportunity like we used to have years ago where Justin Verlander went to the Astros, which I still can't believe that happened like in the second trading deadline at the time. But yeah. will he actually do it? He's going to have to pull the trigger this offseason. And getting back to the Keller and Cease portion of this is those teams may say, hey, they're not available now, right? Like the White Sox, because right. that's a that's a really poorly run organization. They may just say, hey, we're not trading Dylan Cease, right? And the Pirates may say, hey, you know what? We're healthy. We feel like we can compete this year. We're not trading Mitch Keller because they could say, hey, let's roll into the season, see how things go. And if we're not playing well at the deadline, then we can put Keller on the block. So those pitchers may not be available. Yeah. And it's just a matter of who else might become available and whether Heim, uh, Heim gives up what it takes. I mean, one of the things, I mean, we've talked about this before, but uh, one of the things Dombrowski did really well and a portion of this was luck is trading the right guys out of the farm system he uh he kept benintendi who was looked like a was going to be a future superstar here uh, certainly hasn't panned out that way when he messed with his swing but uh trading uh, trading moncada though people thought uh, was going to be a 30 30 guy at least and that was smart kopeck really hasn't uh had anything uh you know hasn't developed into a reliable pitcher even though he throws 103 miles an hour sometimes uh espinoza for pomerantz that worked out all these things that he did and then keeping devers and uh you know not messing with the guys on the major league roster that were the star level players it, it really played out well for him but uh mini marco being another one the kimbrell trade but um Hyam is gonna have to do that too at some point he's gonna have to look at the guys in his system and their internal ranking and not what baseball America or MLB pipeline or anything says and decide who the guys are, who, when this team is a legitimate championship contender annually, which is what we've been sold that the, the plan is, uh, who are the guys that are going to be on the field? And I, I think York is the guy you trade. Um, you you hit the pick. You got the pick right when the industry didn't think it was a, a a wise one. They were perplexed. The Keith Laws of the world, but had that really good first year. Got hurt, fell off last year, and he's bounced back somewhat this season. Uh, I trade Raffaella, who I just don't know if he's ever going to stop swinging at bad pitches, but probably is going to win <laughs> multiple Gold Gloves as a major leaguer. Uh, you have to ID the identify those guys in your system. You know them better than anybody else does. Uh, you know every work of their personality, uh, their habits on and off the field. You should get it right with your own prospects. And he's going to have to make those hard decisions this offseason because this team is finally trending the right way and it can't stagnate. It's okay to handle a deadline the way that he did. He can't handle the offseason that way. 
Well, first of all, we're going to have to edit out the Nick York thing for the boss because he's a big fan of Nick York. And I've heard Marcel, that, yeah. Meyer, yeah. Meyer connection. So we're going to have to edit that portion out. But um, it's when you look at the farm system, right, you mentioned those two guys, Raffaella and York, and then you think about it, well, there's you're starting to build depth there because you have Roman Anthony, you have Miguel Blaze, those guys are younger, right? And if you look at it, when you mentioned some of these trades that they made. If you go back and you look at the 2016 Red Sox in terms of the rank, the prospect rankings, and you think about who worked out and who didn't, you mentioned Moncada. He is, hasn't had an OPS north of 700 since 2021. Number two, <laughs> like he was bad. Number two, and it's a, it, Dave Dombrowski was so good at this. Hey, you cannot have Rafael Devers. You want Moncada, you want Kopik, yes, but you're not getting Devers, you're not getting Benintendi. So Benintendi was third at that point, and... He was a hit, but as you mentioned, not really worth a big deal down the road. Anderson Espinosa, he is 25 and he's in AAA. That worked out for Drew Pomerantz, even though Pomerantz, he could have taken that trade back because of the issue. That was that whole weird thing, but you did need an arm. But it's not like Anderson Espinosa was worth keeping around. People Kopech, hated that trade. Oh, they hated so that mad. trade. Well, I think, and I think a large portion of that was because of the health, right? Just because it was like, well, he was flagged medically, which that was some bullshit by the Padres, too. Where it's yeah. like, they obviously knew more than they were leading on. And then, so Kopik, 27-year-old season. You mentioned he's got the high velocity, but 449 ERA this year at 27. You do that trade again for Chris Sale. Brian Johnson was sixth in 2016. AAA right now, I believe, with the Angels. Sam Travis was number seven. He's oh out of the God. league. Luis Alexander Basabi, I think his last name was. He was in the Sale trade. Too. Okay. I don't. I don't really remember him that much from back he then. He had a twin brother that was a, a better prospect. It was in the Sox system, but he didn't. Oh, pan he did. Out okay. Either. Yeah, they were twins. Okay. So number nine was Devin Marrero, career one ninety one hitter, and Michael Chavis, career OPS of six eighty eight. His strikeout rate for his career is thirty one point seven percent. I will say this: he had a moment with the Red Sox, and I think that all got to his head because once everybody realized, hey, if you throw a fastball up in the zone, there's no chance he's catching up to it. Yeah, right. Oh, and, yeah. I wasn't the biggest Chavis fan either. That guy was really cocky for somebody that didn't. He was a talker. Yeah, he was always available. Yeah, remember we heard about his notebook? Like, he goes back and he writes about every single at bat. But my (laughs) point being with this, right? So out of those 10, in 2016, the Red Sox, it was thought they had a good farm system, right? And so at that time, one monster hit in Raphael Devers. Benintendi worked out, sure. But I mean, so we'll say that's two hits. Moncada Kopik were right guys to trade, to your point about Dave Dombrowski. And if they were here, we'd be complaining about them, right? We'd be like, these guys are bums. Get rid of them. They're not good. Copic can't stay healthy. Mankata's just not very good. So basically, you're looking at a 20% hit rate in terms of the top yeah. 10 guys in 2016. So that's where this is like the next test to what we were talking about earlier for Bloom. It's which guys are not going to hit. You have got to know that internally and figure that out to get controllable major league pitchers. And I'm fascinated to see what he does this upcoming offseason in terms of going after a starting pitcher because at some point some of these prospects where now fan graphs had the Red Sox system up to fifth recently in terms of the organizational wow, rankings. Didn't see that. Yeah. You're gonna have to figure out a way to move on from some of these guys. And history tells us most of them are not gonna hit. This is the currency where one organization believes in the guy more than you do. So I'll be interested to see if Rafaela or York are moved this offseason, because I, I'm with you. I think those are the two guys that would obviously be moved. Obviously, I mean, the guys at the top, you're not moving. And the guys that are on the younger side, you're probably not moving either. Because, too, you think about it. You mentioned Meyer. Stories coming back. Like, 
Right. Is, He's a second it, baseman. Right. So there, and so now it's like, well, where is York going to play? And I get it's great right, to have right. depth, but you need to put that into starting pitching depth. I'm still stuck on Devin Marrero being a top 10 draft pick. He was the Yu <laughs> Chang of his time. Yeah. Oh, my God. By the way, did you see the game on? Uh, we're recording Tuesday after the trading deadline, of course. Monday, the Yu Chang swing against the slider. Yeah. And give this guy all the credit. Like, I don't want to be taking like digs at Yu Chang because he's clearly stabilized that position defensively. But Great this in the guy World cannot, Baseball Classic. Yeah. This guy cannot hit. He cannot hit. I mean, good luck going up there with him. Do you wish they kept Bogarts? I mean, do you, do you, do you wish they had signed him for the 5 150 that uh, it supposedly would have taken back in May? You know, if you asked me this question a couple of months ago, I probably would have said yes. Yeah, but they may the be proven. They they may be proven correct about this because clearly, again, he's dealing with issues and he's had health issues the past couple of years. And I feel like going back to the whole PR aspect, they handled that really poorly. But if you're asking me, like, I think that Story is going to be better than Bogarts over the next four years or so because I still think Story is going to hit for some pop, and I know he's never going to hit for average. He's a better, and I know Bogarts' numbers are be, are really good defensively. Part of that is the Red Sox. Like, they got him right with the first step, some of the positioning. Right. Because prior to last year, he never really graded out well defensively. But I think Story, now that they actually figured out the elbow issue, I th- and you look at his contract, I mean, it's, it's going to be a fair, like, the first two years we get it, sunk cost. And maybe not if he goes on a nice little stretch here when he comes back from the injury, but... At this point, no. I, I think that the, it, it it actually now how they got to that point was not the correct way to do it. But at this point, I think they've kind of been proven correct on the Bogarts thing. Yeah, I mean, you think about what their concerns were, whether the power was going to translate, or, or yeah, it was already declining, but whether that would translate to a ballpark that was not Fenway Park and uh, you know conducive to his swing, and it hasn't really worked out in San Diego after that first two week stretch he had where he was. Uh, you know, hitting home runs his first couple of weeks there. He's really hasn't uh, hasn't brought that power out there with him, and that's definitely a concern. And I, you know, the defensive improvement was always really interesting to me because he he dove headlong into analytics before last season and uh, really studied up on what defensive runs saved are, how that works, how they register uh, all these stats, and I. I I feel like he, I don't th- think he gamed the system, but I feel like he knew what was going to make him look good defensively and what wouldn't. Not in any kind of bad way, just he recognized that, oh, you know, if I die for this ball and it clangs off my glove, uh, uh, it you know may, may give me some sort of uh, knockdown demerit as a defensive player. Uh, and uh, I, I think he really got a good read on, on what a, you know, how, how analytics can help him out as a defensive player. So he's steady, and I would have taken that over uh, Kike Hernandez, that's for sure. But I think yeah. in the long term, the contract they signed him to is going to be brutal. The contract that he could have gotten from the Red Sox, which looked really fair, uh, reasonable for him to ask for, that might have ended up looking bad too. Yeah, and it's interesting too, like looking at the whole Bogart situation, like looking back in time at it, because at the time I loved the story signing. I'm like, oh, this is great. Now let's figure out what you're doing with Bogarts. Because my thought process at the time is, okay, let's extend Bogarts too, if it's just an extra two years. But I was excited about bringing Story in because I thought, okay, this guy can play elite level second base. We already know he's an elite level defender. The issue with Story was 
we were sold that, hey, the elbow's not a concern, we would find out that the elbow was a concern. Like, if you look at the numbers last year, the arm strength was down, and then this year, all of a sudden, oh, he needs surgery on the elbow. So that thing was a ticking time bomb. But this guy historically clobbers left-handed pitching, and he's an elite defender. So I was all for the move. I just felt like it was a weird situation with the Bogarts thing where Bogarts was recruiting him. It felt like Bogarts thought he was going to be extended. But in the long term, they may be better off without Bogarts and having Story back. I've always liked Story as a player. Speaking of players that um may not be here much longer, we mentioned Bogarts, Alex Verdugo. So... It appeared he was on the market, and then we found out late on Monday, hey, the Red Sox are telling teams, well, he's at least going to finish out this se- this season with the team. Now, next year is his final year of arbitration, and if you look at it, he finished July, even though he had a nice little four-game hitting streak, he still, despite the four-game hitting streak, 151 in July, that's <laughs> 180th out of 180 qualifiers, Chad. So, and... My question now is, and I've I've brought this up a couple of times on the pod now, before we get into whether or not they're going to trade him in the offseason, which I think the answer to that is yes, because they're not going to sign him long term. He's hitting 232 this year against lefties, 120th out of 157 qualifiers, 304 on base percentage, 145th. This is a guy that was advertised as, I don't want to say like the face of the franchise, but because that's Rafi, but one of the guys on the team, right? He was one of the guys on the team. And now... I don't know how you justify playing him against left-handed pitching. Like, I get the defense is really good, but Yoshida's better than him, despite the recent 0-4-18 that Yoshida's in right now. And Duran's better than him right now. You're going to play Duvall against a left-handed pitcher. And Ref Snyder has the best on-base percentage in all of Major League Baseball against a left-handed pitcher. So Verdugo, like, from a clubhouse perspective here, how is he going to react if and I know the manager will sit him down like if he needs to he's trying to get into the postseason here like it just feels like a weird dynamic if he's going to be around and not playing every day because this is a guy like he's got a big ego yeah he believes in himself that's for sure (laughs) he you know he I'm dating myself on this he reminds me of end of career Mike Greenwell as a hitter not 1988 should have been MVP Mike Greenwell but the guy who uh, would flip a double off the wall or or hit you know hit maybe uh, hit an occasional hard hit ball into the gap in right center, but most of his hits were ground singles, um, and the power was just gone. But Greenwell was an elbow injury. Um, I think it was '96 was his last year here, and he he could still get on base and drive in a run, but he just wasn't really any threat. And that's that's how I felt about Verdugo for most of this season. I mean, I know he had the great start and he had. Uh, somewhat of a case to make the all-star team. His defense is uh, probably one of the bigger surprises of the season, given how poorly he played in left field, that he's adjusted to right field so well and kind of had like a Shane Victorino type of season out there defensively. Uh, That's a pleasant surprise. He's got three home runs since the start of May. Uh, Just no power there at all. That's 60-something games, almost 70 games. And he, he... He's not driving in runs. I remember going to a game pretty recently, and it was when all the all-star stuff was kind of going on with him, and he thought he should have been there, and J-Rod shouldn't have been. And I'm looking up at the giant board in center field. Verdugo, I don't remember the batting average. Seven home runs, 39 RBIs. And I'm just thinking, I know he's been good, but that's not an all-star outfielder. I grew up with Evans, Rice, and Lynn, you know? <laughs> and guys who would have 17, 18 home runs at the all-star break and drive in 50, 55 runs, and uh, even more than that, actually. And he just, 
he's not that guy and he needs to be that guy. He's a good ball player, but he's not someone that you can look at and say he's part of the he's a cornerstone here, particularly when you're going to have to start to pay him. And particularly uh, given how friend of the program, Alex Cora, uh, has had to continually kick him in the ass to get him to be motivated over the course of his time here. Yeah, he's not a self-starter, right? I mean, you mentioned it. Even when he was having a great start to the season, there was still a game where he got benched because he wasn't running out a ball. So He's a natural. Like, that's what it is. Yeah. That's what I think. I think <laughs> it came easy to him when he was young. Yeah. No, you're probably right about that. And he's entering, what, his 28-year-old season next year. I would imagine that he's moved. And getting back to this whole theme of starting pitching, maybe you can look at a different organization and find a pitcher or a team that's interested in an outfielder because... He is a good player, and I hope this recent streak gets him going and the fact that he wasn't traded. Hopefully that gets him going. Like I'd like to see him be the guy that he was at the beginning of the season. I just can't trust that'll be the case, and if that's not the case, it's going to be a weird dynamic when he's not playing against left-handed pitching because that may be the case going forward. All right, a couple of things outside of like the actual players that were moved. Do you think this will be an issue in the clubhouse after Rafi came out publicly and said that they wanted to add at the deadline and... They got Luis Urias. I don't think that's who Rafi had in mind because we have seen like these trading deadlines have been weird for the Red Sox, right? You go back to 2021, yeah. they were all mad. Although like the Schwarber thing, it ended up being the best bat that moved. But as I alluded to earlier, the fact was he wasn't healthy. That's why they were upset. And last year was just no other way to say it. It was just a complete shit show, right? I mean, they really <laughs> should, they should have moved on from more guys, right? Like they screwed themselves over with draft picks by holding on to some of these guys that they weren't going to keep around, the Nates and the JDs of the world. And Reese McGuire actually worked out for them. I mean, he he actually hit the ball, and now he's back with the team. Sorry to Alfaro that he's gone. But you think this one, like, internally, they handle it better than they have in the past? Or do you think there's going to be some... I'm sure they're frustrated that they didn't get helped because they look at the recent run they're on, and they've played really good baseball up until the San Francisco series. But you think this is going to be an issue in the clubhouse? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, Devers wanted help, and I don't know if Urias can play third, but maybe he's Devers' defensive replacement for how badly he's played <laughs> over there lately. Oh, uh, man. That's the help they might have needed. Um, that was the same I, day. The, the day he made the error against the Giants, which, by the way, most errors among any player that's not a shortstop in Major League Baseball. This is the same day he said that, which I thought the timing yeah. was not great, Rafi, after... Basically, it was a tailor-made double play, Paul. You get out of the inning, you don't give up a run. The Red Sox ended up losing that game by one run. So I don't think the timing of that was well executed by Rafi. He should have said this like after one of the games that he had a home run. <laughs> well, he could have said it after that Braves game Wednesday when he botched two plays early, but then hit the home run later on in that great oh, yeah. uh, the Strider Bayo game. Yeah, yeah. Off, off the pitch at his ankles. Maybe he could have said it then, even though that was a crappy defensive performance too, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I, I think the dynamics a little better this year because, um, you know, Bogarts, Martinez, Bogarts is a great guy. Martinez, Avaldi is a great guy. Martinez is a good guy. Um, but they knew they might be gone and they knew, uh, yeah. th th that, you know, that was probably the last round up here. Maybe Bogarts didn't realize that, but Avaldi uh, and Martinez certainly did. And, um, I think this is different. You've got that younger, can you call it a core yet? But it's certainly a younger group of guys. And I include Yoshida in that, even though he's older because he's in his first year over here. Uh, and there's probably just, um, you know, more general enthusiasm, energy, 
even though they've been this little rut these last few games, they're probably feeling pretty good about themselves because because they've outperformed sort of the broad expectations of what their season was going to be. They have a shot at the playoffs. So, uh, and, and and I think the camaraderie of the team is is pretty solid, and everybody's kind of on the same page. So I, I don't think it's going to be something where they lose seven out of nine and they say, well, if you didn't get us help at deadline, the you didn't get us help at deadline, you let us down. I remember the 19 Red Sox were kind of like that. That wasn't high. And that was Dombrowski where he didn't do anything. There was talk like Cashner. Uh, remember that? Cashner. Yeah. In the middle of the month, they got him. But there, Edwin Diaz was a name that got kicked around. Then Shane Green. Uh, there was another closer. I can't remember, but it, relief help and he didn't do anything and they were they were ticked off and that season really didn't go anywhere but um kind of reminded me of that a little bit rather than one of bloom's previous weird deadlines yeah cashner the one thing i always remember about him is he had the tiniest glove i don't know why he had such a small glove but he had a small glove and then remember the whole thing that dombrowski was saying and i think that the ownership group basically said like hey no more moves right and but if you look at a cashner like they kept selling us that hey nobody's got a guy like nate Evaldi coming back they can throw 100 out of the bullpen and nate Evaldi right. has never been good out of the bullpen right like he's he's not a good i know he came out of the bullpen in that dodgers game in the world series but that one he, time yeah yeah he's not like a sprinter he's more of a guy that you know can give you five six seven innings the way that he's pitched well he's actually struggled a bit lately but and dealing with an injury, but you get the point is like, that's usually how it goes. And then when you look at this situation going forward, that going back in time, I should say, speaking of the Dodgers series, did you see what Eduardo Rodriguez did? Yeah. He's still <laughs> mad about the Puig home run, isn't he? Is that why he didn't want to go there? <laughs> he didn't want to go to the Dodgers, which I think this whole situation is weird, right? So Erod had basically 10 teams that he has on his list where he can basically block the trade. He blocked it to the Dodgers who are one of the teams right now that can legitimately say they have a really good opportunity to make it to the World Series. And the interesting component to me with all this when, as it pertains to Erod, is he's playing for a really bad Detroit team. And I know he had issues last year in terms of what happened, like he stepped away from the game for a little bit. So maybe it has something to do with his family. We don't know all the details about why he decided not to go there. But it just feels weird to me that the process of this, where the Tigers have traded him to the Dodgers— and then we find out that Erod blocks it. Like, don't you think this would have been something that the Tigers would call him up first and say, hey, <laughs> will you lift the no trade for the Dodgers? Like, I feel like this has kind of happened backwards. Maybe they couldn't find him. He was missing <laughs> for a few months last year. Maybe <laughs> that's he was off for the weekend or something. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, I, I, I kind of assumed it might be a, a personal preference thing in terms of his family because who wouldn't want to go to that team? The, the great ballpark. Uh, LA, uh, got a chance to win every year, great teammates around you. It seemed like the ideal destination, uh, if you're going to get dealt at the deadline and, uh, you know, he's got some pretty good memories there from pitching with the Red Sox other than, uh, Puig taking him deep that in the, in the world series. So yeah, it was surprising. I figured it probably, uh, probably a personal reason. Yeah. That's what I think too. But I mean, opportunity there to go help a team win a World Series, decided not to take it. It's just, it's a weird situation. But looking at the AL, what moves did you, like, what team do you think made out better? Is it the Rangers getting Scherzer and Montgomery, or is it just the fact that Houston brings back Justin Verlander? The Mets basically paid for the Astros' number one prospect. Now, granted, it's not like a high number one prospect. Like, he's not in the top five right. or top ten in Major League Baseball. But basically, Steve Cohen has paid for him, and Verlander, over his last seven starts, is third in Major League Baseball among starters in ERA. I think it's the Astros just because 
He knows where he wants to be. He wants to be in Houston. Scherzer yeah. has not been as great this year. And if you look at Scherzer, like the velocity and all his stuff is down. And I know they got Montgomery as well, but I think it's the Astros. I think the Astros, I mean, they should have our trust, right? Because they've now done it post cheating scandal. They won last season. So I think it's, I think it's, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's bigger for the Astros than it is for the Rangers. And it, I think it does, it does make the stretch run just not from a Boston perspective, but from a national perspective, at least somewhat interesting that you have the two Texas teams where we heard that Scherzer and Verlander aren't the best of friends and one goes to Texas, one goes oh, to Oh, is Houston. that true? Huh. Yeah, I mean, there was there was some buzz about that. Like when Verlander was first going to the Mets, like, hey, should Verlander really go here because of the Scherzer thing? I didn't even know it was a thing, but apparently they're not the best of friends and now they're going to basically rivals here. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I'm on Scherzer's side, just not knowing anything about the situation, but just kind of the general vibe of the two guys. Uh, I want to see Verlander end up. There were L.A. rumors uh, and Atlanta later on in the afternoon. That would have been really interesting just to see what the Braves would have had to give up to get him um, because the, their major league roster is set for the next five years. So, uh, Loaded. Yeah, so Michael Harris, you know, ends up being closer to what he was last year than what he has been for most of this season. They're stacked. So I, I was curious to see what a Verlander the Braves deal looked like. But getting him back to Houston, comfortable situation. He knows everybody. He's been pitching better lately for the Mets. His last start, I think, was 5.1 innings, but he got the win and uh, um, looked like himself. So uh, to me, that he was the biggest guy to move and and probably probably will have the biggest impact because I'll buy it with the Rangers. Uh, Scherzer looks like he's um, not a guy who needed a change of scenery, but a guy whose skills are declining. And that team's taken so many lumps already with injuries. Seager seems like he's got a new one every couple of weeks. They lost to Grom, obviously, for the year. And uh, that Ross, they've spent a lot of money and they're going for it. And that's cool. But uh, I don't think they quite have enough. All right, Chad. So we've covered a lot in the Red Sox. I do want to get into the media stuff, though, because, of course, Doc Rivers has a big job at ESPN now. He's going to be on the number one team there, along with Doris Burke and Mike Breen. I want to get into what you think of this move for ESPN. We'll do that next. The U.S. team is taking on the world, and you can take home bonus bets every time they win with FanDuel. Because right now, new customers get $100 in bonus bets guaranteed, plus another $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app and sign up between now and August 3rd. Then place your first $5 bet to unlock your bonus bets. That way, you'll be all set to bet on everything from total goals to player props all tournament long. However you want to play, don't miss your chance to get $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Plus, $100 in bonus bets guaranteed. Make every moment more with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets, which expire in seven days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. We have a new crew, Chad, for the NBA Finals. Doc Rivers and Doris Burke in, and Jeff Van Gundy, we've known for a while, out, Mark Jackson out as well. So, Breen, Mike Breen told the New York Post, Andrew Marchand, that it's sad because we really thought we had something special, and that's going to be the thought going forward, is that we were going to be able to do it a lot longer than everybody ever did. It's something we'll all treasure, but we just wish it was a little bit longer. So also in this article from the Post, and by the way, I give you credit, you had this story before Marchand did a couple of weeks ago where you said that it signs point to Doc and Doris taking over for the NBA Finals after Van Gundy had been let go, but Van Gundy... From the post, he was critical of the NBA and its officiating, 
which the NBA has expressed disappointment with over the years and even this season, according to sources. However, there's no evidence of an edict from the NBA to make a change. So it also says that the former Knicks coach was a victim of ESPN's talent layoffs, while Van Gundy was one of the best game analysts in the sports. Top ESPN executives were wary of his desire to coach again. Okay, so I'm going to say yeah. in the second part of that, not true. I think what they were, they, they, they wanted to move dark. Yeah, they, <laughs> it's a great point. They wanted to move on because he was negative about the officials. Now, I didn't know this. Like, is that, like I know that he's negative about the officials. I guess it just doesn't bother me. Like, I think that Van Gundy was basically the best guy in the game. Like, over the years, we've had a lot of good guys. Like, I really liked Steve Kerr when he was doing the games. He was really good. I really, really liked Van Gundy. I thought he was outstanding. In fact, I thought the years where Mark Jackson was coaching and it was just Breen and Van Gundy, yeah. I actually thought it was better. I don't think that Mark Jackson brings too much to the broadcast, to be honest. I mean, it's a lot of catchphrases and whatnot, but I think Van Gundy's outstanding. But I didn't realize that the officiating thing was such a problem. Like, people were really that upset about it. Is it just, is it NBA people, you think? Or is it like actual fans are upset by this? Jeez, what did they think of Tommy Heinsohn when he was doing CBS games <laughs> in the uh, yeah. 70s, in the 80s? Uh, <laughs> I, I was surprised, but I've heard the same thing. I think a lot of people have, uh, that the league was really turned off uh, by his criticism of the refs and you've been called on the carpet about it a couple of times but that that also feels more like a david stern thing to me than an adam silver thing unless silver is much more subtle in the way that he uh wields his power which might be true i mean we, we saw how well he handled the donald sterling situation when he first became commissioner so maybe uh maybe he eradicates things that he feels like are problems pretty quickly without uh, getting any blood on his hands but um Van Gundy was terrific, and I really trusted what he said beyond his sense of humor, um, his self-deprecation. I remember he told me one time when they do those intros at the start of the broadcast where Breen talks and Jackson and Van Gundy are sitting next to him. Van Gundy just stares into the camera and says, I can't believe I look like this. <laughs> just jokes about himself. And um, <laughs> it, it that came across in the broadcast, but you if he criticized a coach or something offended him on the court, he said it, he, he, he said it, he didn't like to criticize coaches, but when he did it, it, you, you paid attention because you knew it came from a place of really caring about the game, about knowledge, about truth, about understanding what the team should be doing. He hammered Missoula a couple of times in the heat series, uh, not overwhelmingly, but more than he usually does with coaches and that was like a tipping point for me where I said, all right, this this guy isn't the right guy for this team. He can't be. Um, I trust Brad, but I just uh, I, this guy can't do it because even Van Gundy's turning on him here. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to miss that. And I, we're not going to uh, Doc was a terrific broadcaster when he did it before. And he was really candid with your boss when he had him on the podcast. So it was tremendous. But I don't know if he's going to do that on the broadcast if he wants to coach again himself. I don't know if this is a layover thing for Doc or if he's going to stick around for a while. So um, I'm going to miss Van Gundy. Nick Jackson, not as much, but that was a tremendous broadcast team. And it's a it's a loss for NBA viewers, even if, you know, maybe they annoyed you a little bit sometimes. I agree. Now, the thing about Doc that you mentioned from Bill's pod is I was shocked that he was just willing to say stuff about Embiid, right? He just coached And Harden, him. yeah. Yeah, and Harden. He basically said about Embiid, like, he's going to figure out how to make players better. I mean, this is the yeah. MVP of the NBA, and I don't disagree with what he's saying or anything along those lines. Like, he had more turnovers than assists in 
the postseason. So I totally understand where he's coming from. I was just actually surprised that he was actually willing to say that just after getting moved on from. So now it's going to be Doc and Doris Burke. Now, apparently they really like J.J. Redick. I like J.J. Redick, too. And apparently he's going to be part of the second team now that Mark Jackson's out of the equation here with um, it appeared that Mark Jackson was going to be part of the B team or C team going forward. And then he's now gone from ESPN as well in terms of their NBA coverage. But Doc and Doris Burke, I'm wondering, like, is Doc a big enough personality to be like, just like, why do they need to put three people in the booth? <sighs> Nothing. I'm just, or do you think it's just Doris Burke has been there for so long? They feel like it's time to elevate her to the number one crew as well. But Doc Rivers is like a big name, a well-known name, like across the league. I'm, I'm surprised that they wouldn't just do a two-man booth there. Yeah, I, I remember talking to Doris earlier this year, and I, I was trying to figure out when she started at ESPN and started doing NBA games. And she's actually been at the network back into the 90s. She has wow. called games for them, you know, college basketball games, a lot of women's college basketball games at the beginning, but just gradually got better and better assignments as she got better and better at the job. So um, she's got her reps. And uh, she's called the finals on the radio the last few years. She She's certainly ready for the elevation, but I'm really curious what the dynamic is going to be because Doc's a talker. Uh, the thing with Breen, Jackson, and Van Gundy is they had this great history together. Going back to the Knicks, Van Gundy coached Jackson. These guys, have, Breen's a Knicks announcer. They've known each other forever. And that long-standing uh, interpersonal relationship that the three of them have came across in the broadcast, which is why it went so smoothly and why they could needle each other and uh, work a little humor in and have it feel authentic. And I don't know if it's going to feel that way right off the top with, with Breen and Doris and, and Doc as the uh, analyst, because they just don't have that history together yet. And uh, probably will be some awkwardness at the beginning and probably some overly politeness with them getting out of each other's way and, uh, you know, Doris gets a lot of heat anyway. Some of it's deserved, but most of it isn't. Uh, I think one thing she could stand to do is probably not call players by their first names all the time because that that kind of gets um, that thing on Twitter where people say, oh, she's rooting for this team, she's rooting for that team because, you know, she'll refer to Joel and Jason and uh, sounds like she's kind, you know, kind of uh, rooting for them in a personal way rather than calling the game sometimes. Yeah, that kind of happened a lot during that series against the 76ers where Celtics fans thought like she had money on the 76ers oh. or, or it was a joke that she had money. like they were joking around about it on Twitter or whatnot. But I like Doris for the most part, and hopefully she does a great job. I remember when I was in college, she was doing a lot of college basketball games. She did Syracuse games. I thought she was I thought she was really good. And I think she's she's good at her job. I just wonder going back to your point about Jackson and Van Gundy. That's why I bring up JJ It's like JJ played for Doc. So those guys already have a connection like Doc, when he was coaching with the Clippers, like his whole thing in the first quarter was to get J.J. shots. Like at that time, J.J. was like one of the best first quarter scorers in the entire NBA because they were running their <laughs> offense to get J.J. open shots. Like and I do kind of feel like despite I mean, I thought the argument him and Perkins had. I mean, that was that was crazy. Like those guys are really going at it. And actually, Stephen A. Smith talked to Bill about that on his pod, about how those guys just really went at it. And yeah, it was anyway, real. I, yeah, I, I like JJ. And I mean, shockingly, you're you're going to hear this from me. Like he brings sort of the analytical approach too. like he's got all these numbers like like he would just throw them at people on first take when I remember Stephen A. Smith talked about Jokic and said he's not really known for his post game. And JJ's like, 
that's literally the most efficient play in the NBA over the past three seasons. Like, I think JJ would have been, I think, I'm surprised they didn't, like, look at that connection, the JJ Doc thing. Yeah, I, he definitely got consideration. Um, when I tweeted out that it was uh, most likely going to mm. be Doris, Doris Breen and Doc, uh, he had had, uh, serious conversations at that point about being the guy, but um, I think they just realized it'd probably be better to work him in on on this second team. I assume that's with Mark Jones. I don't know that for sure. Uh, and I thought during the draft, JJ would have been better in moderation. Uh, Billis got really, really shoved off to the side during the draft, and and uh, it almost seemed like the JJ show where. He would get 50% of the time and the other two analysts would get a little bit of uh, t- uh, time to talk. And then um, who was it? Malika, I think, was the host. Uh, she would do her thing. But it really felt like they were kind of forcing JJ on you. And it didn't go that well. And I wonder if the uh, they felt like maybe him on a two-hour NBA broadcast right now might be uh, something he needs to get a few more repetitions at first. Yeah, it, it's a good point. And I would say it went better than Perk. Remember Perk a couple of years ago had trouble with, like he was comparing everybody to a certain player in the NBA. It just, I thought that was, and like Perk probably never seen half these guys play. It was just, it was out there, but as Wait it pertains- Perk gets the uh, NBC Sports Boston play-by-play job when Mike retires. And- <laughs> oh boy, we'll get to that in a second. What was it, Moose, uh, what was the guys he called, called him Moses Modi or something instead of Moses Moody? He kept calling him Moses or something or Modi Moses or something. I forget what it was, but he couldn't get that guy's name right. It was funny. But uh, speaking of Doc real quick before we get into Mike Gorman, is, is his voice going to hold up? Like that's kind of an important question here. It's very raspy at this point. Yeah, all these years of yelling at Harden have uh, made it even raspier than it was before. If you go on YouTube and listen to a game that he called previously, I think he was with NBC before, uh, he sounds like a different person. The The raspiness isn't there. So uh, I don't know what his condition is or whether it's something that's going to get worse, but it's been like this for a while. And uh, as it is now, it's fine on TV, but if his voice gets worse and worse, uh, you know, maybe they'll have to reconsider this booth again a couple of years down the road. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Doc does. I am mean, I'm interested to see it because obviously the Celtics are going to get a lot of those 18 games because they are the Celtics. So before I let you go, Chad, Mike Gorman announced that this is going to be his final season. I think people thought it was heading in this direction. Really, since COVID, he hasn't traveled that much at all. I mean, he goes to some games and most of them in the Northeast area. And we've seen Grandy's had to pick up a lot of those games. Some of the West Coast games, they to your point, yeah. they do those like players only games, which I'm not the biggest fan of those games. I like to and I think Scal, when they do those games, he tries to go too much into the play by play at times. I like Scal, but I like him as an analyst. Like just talk almost, to Eddie. Talk with yeah, Eddie. I rather and- I rather them do it like the Mannings do, where they're just like talking right. the whole time. Yeah. Rather like I feel like that and most of those games are like you know, you don't have a big audience because it's at 1030 at night or 10. Most of those games are not like the primetime windows for us where a lot of people have to work the next day at 9 a.m. They're not making it to that game. Just make those ones entertaining. Forget about doing the whole play by play thing. But I mean, what do you think they do long term here? Because they have Grandy on the radio side of things as well. So it's like Grandy's doing double duty the past couple of seasons with Gorman not traveling all the time. But it's definitely going to be an interesting decision here because, I mean, Gorman's an institution, right? I mean, he's been here yeah. forever. I mean, it's like what and not that Gorman's the analyst, but you had Tommy and then with the Red Sox, how long we had Remy for? Like he's really yeah. been an institution. 
He's been here longer than Joe Castig's been calling the Red Sox. It was wow. uh, 88. I should have mentioned uh, Castig too. Sorry. Yeah. Bird's, Bird's rookie year uh, was uh, Mike and Tommy's first year, I believe, or maybe it was 80, 81. I always mix it up, but beginning of the Bird era anyway. And Castig was 83. So um, we've had these voices for a long time. Uh, Mike uh, actually. He told Adam Kaufman before the start of last season on uh, his podcast. I know you had him on recently that uh, 23 was uh, 23, 24 season was going to be his last one. I checked in with him in March before the playoffs started. He said, it's his last one. I'm done. Uh, Got to give somebody else a chance. And for some reason, that story Jared Weiss wrote for the athletic this week made it seem like it was new news, but, uh, and NBC sports Boston started really promoting the heck out of this being his last year as they should. Uh, but it's something that he's been planning to do for you know a couple of years now. The he didn't want to travel at all. Um, they kind of worked out an agreement where he would do the uh, the the Northeast games, basically Philly, New York. You know where he's he's in New York a lot anyway. So um, picking up those games, but he was done with the road more or less after COVID in his mind. Uh, I, it should be Grandy. I mean, he's terrific. He's uh, it, it's almost seamless when he fills in with Mike. He's a great listener on the radio. He did T-Wolves games back in the Garnett, uh, Garnett Marbury years. Uh, just the perfect guy. But I don't think they're totally convinced that's the decision to make yet at NBC Sports Boston because there's so much interest in this job. I know they thought about, uh, uh, had some real interest in Noah Eagle in the past. Uh, Ian's son, who um, he's got a national profile now, he's probably not going to come here. He did Clippers games. Uh, he's really carved out a, a great spot of his own, but he's somebody who's on their radar in the past as maybe a potential long-term Mike Fillin. Uh, I think it should be Grandy. I think it's uh, kind of a no-brainer, but uh, I would not be shocked if they really give it a, a thorough look at uh, some outside voices. Yeah, and the thing about Grandy, too, he already has a really good rapport with Scal. Like, I feel like those guys have a nice little back and forth where they'll go at each other a little bit on the broadcast as well. So I, They I, had to do that game where the rim was Rob bent the, Rob Williams bent the rim, and they had to nuggets, talk right? for 45 minutes. Yeah, and it was, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's hard. I mean, that's impossible to do, and they did it. And uh, I, I think that's a pretty good audition for Grandy, but we'll see what they think over there. Yeah, that's like doing our Red Sox rain delay shows. You ever done any of them? Yeah, a couple. <laughs> I, you know what? I actually, those are some of my favorite shows, Chad, because you had like the whole network. So you had all these you had people from Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, like all these people calling up during the game. I actually really enjoyed doing those. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I can, I can understand that. I, I, I'd rather do a baseball rain delay than forty-five minutes of an NBA game while they're trying to straighten out a rim and. Me too. Walking back and forth, getting ladders and stuff. Yeah, I can't believe that was a thing. And I guess it was technically 2023, right? Because it was on New Year's Day. I think it was 2023. I can't believe that's a thing in 2023. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That is Chad Finn from The Globe. Chad, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. You bet, man. Always good to talk to you. All right. Great stuff there from Chad Finn on the Red Sox, the trading deadline. And of course, we got into the media situation with Doc Rivers. I can't wait to hear Doc on the broadcast. Like, I'm really excited to have this opportunity to hear him call games because when I was growing up, like I knew that he did this briefly, but I don't remember him in 2004 calling games. And now that Chad said it, I got to go back on YouTube because I did hear one of my brothers actually told me that his voice is totally different from what it is now. So I'm excited to get Doc on the broadcast. So great stuff there from Chad. Coming up next, 
We'll get into the Patriots. Connor Orr from Sports Illustrated was at Patriots practice today, so we'll chat with him about what he saw. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, senior writer at Sports Illustrated, it is Connor Orr. Connor, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We know you're traveling. You were just at Patriots practice, so this is perfect timing. How you doing, man? I'm doing as well as anyone can be in uh, westbound at, uh, during drive time. But, but it's good. Yeah, I, I had a good time. Yeah, no doubt about that. I do not envy the traffic situation that you're dealing with right now. So you wrote a couple of articles recently about the Patriots. You including that you included them rather in your 12 teams that could actually win Super Bowl 58. And you have the article up from today, Good Vibes in Foxborough Mid the Team's Quiet Era. So you're at practice on Tuesday. What was your biggest takeaway from what you saw at Patriots camp? So I'll do one thing on the field and one thing off the field. The one thing off the field that I thought was just kind of cool and very unique and not normally something that I kind of bump into, but uh, all the players were, um, they had just like handwritten notes um, of appreciation. And they were just like, and like maybe only like one a day, but like players are walking off the field and handing notes to like groundskeepers, security people. Um, I thought it was just really cool. Like that, like, they just kind of came up with this idea on their own and they were like, Hey, let's just like send notes to people being like, we really value you as a person. And I was like, ah, it's actually like kind of neat. I, I thought Mac Jones fared well against the secondary that I, mean, I think a lot of people forget was one of the best in the NFL last year. I think could probably be the best in the NFL this year. And you know, he's, he's battling with them and uh, I think it's going to make him better. Yeah. And get, going back to the first thing you said about the notes that they're handing out to the groundkeepers and whatnot. So your understanding of that is that was maybe just leaders on the team decided that, hey, this is something we want to do for the people that work for the organization, so to speak? Yeah, it was, and it was pretty neat, too. And I think the one thing that sort of, like, saved my soul was the idea that, like, they're not just, like, filming this for content, like, and, and then just using it as, like, random stuff to put on their Instagram account to make them look better. Like, it, it is not, like, it's not filmed. It's not anything they're advertising. And I was like, yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Like, it's not something that you see often in the NFL where it's sort of this organic idea that is not in some way, shape, or form, like, parlayed into content. Like, I just so happened to bump into it while it was happening or else I wouldn't have known it was going on. That is pretty cool. So, and the maybe, I, won't, I don't want to say the more important thing, but the bigger, juicier detail <laughs> is, is, is Mac Jones, right? So, Mac last season, one of the things that was obvious if you watched the games was that there was a lot of bad body language. And one of the things that we've been hearing all training camp long going back to the offseason is Mac Jones seems refreshed and there seems to be this new attitude with Mac Jones. Does he seem like mentally, physically that he's in a good spot? Is it back to now he knows this is his team again, unlike the weird situation he had last year with Bailey Zappi? Yeah, I mean, I think there was probably, like if I had to do like a soft tally, there was probably two dropbacks in the team situation where I saw him like fluttering and kind of drifting towards the sideline and being like, Hey, I have no idea where I'm going to throw this ball, but otherwise pretty decisive. And what's nice is I, I think 
the Bill O'Brien offense is going to solve a lot of problems. And I, I guess there's probably some Patriots fans, right, that'll kind of roll their eyes at that. But, I mean, I, I spent kind of the offseason just talking to coaches in general and just what he was able to do, how he was able to evolve the Saban scheme at Alabama. A lot of people kind of copying that stuff. A lot of people taking that stuff, um, the way that he's able to create space for some of his playmakers. And you can see that. I mean, Max got some easy throws again. Um, he's a running game that makes sense. And that confidence tends to roll downhill for quarterbacks. So you can see that for sure. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You bring up Bill O'Brien, of course, and that was the biggest move. I guess you could argue Christian Gonzalez, too. But one of the two biggest moves this Patriots team made this offseason. And look, they put themselves in this position by having Matt Patricia last year be the play caller. So they deserve some blame when it comes to that, naturally. But bringing in a guy like Bill O'Brien, who his issue with Houston was never his coaching ability, right? This is a guy that was frequently bringing teams to the playoffs when they had like Brian Hoyer at the quarterback position. Now, eventually they would get Deshaun Watson. And then the one issue he had there, like the red zone offense was never great under Bill O'Brien. But you mentioned the creativity, and I'm fascinated by this because they were a really unique offense at Alabama. A ton of RPOs, which we know Mac was really good at at the collegiate level. In fact, he was the most efficient passer out of RPOs going back to his days at Alabama. Obviously, they crossed paths briefly there when Mac was getting ready for the draft and Bill O'Brien was taking over that job. But one of the things I found interesting is over the past two days, you had Adrian Phillips when he was talking about the offense saying, there's a lot of variety. You never see the same thing twice. We saw that you had in your article, Mike Gusecki said that the personnel didn't bounce around as much in Miami as it does with this Patriots offense. So we've seen across the league, like sort of the Shanahan McVay system take over and all these teams running similar schemes. And I understand why, because they're working. But do you think Bill O'Brien is sort of going to be more similar to what Josh McDaniels did, where it's different personnel groups, they're doing different things? Is that sort of the advantage that he can bring to this offense? Yeah, I think closer to like Brian Dable. Ken Dorsey mm. in Buffalo, like, you know, where I think what you're doing is you're cross-training a team of kind of smarter veteran guys who are going to be able to play multiple positions. You're not necessarily going to be able to play fast, but you can do what Max did while he was at Alabama. Like, you go back and you watch that tape, and what they're doing on every play is just essentially using personnel and pre-snap motion to just give themselves a numerical advantage on one side of the ball and create an easy throw. And I think that while it's not simple, it's one of those things, like some of the athleticism in the NFL cancels some of that stuff out. There's a lot of that that you can bring. And I mean, for example, like the Giants, they switched personnel groupings like crazy last year and really successful with the Eagles, same thing. So I think sometimes if you don't have the horses to run a McVay or a Shanahan system, that's sort of your next best option. And I think O'Brien, you know, institutional knowledge at Alabama, not only what he was able to bring, but what he was able to take, I think is probably extremely valuable at this point. Well, that makes a lot of sense too. the Dayball comparison, not because of the Patriots connection, but the fact that Dayball is at Alabama too. And if you're comparing yep. anybody to Brian Dayball, I mean, I love to hear that because we saw all the success that not only had with Josh Allen and he played to his strengths. And then, as you mentioned, with Daniel Jones, so that has me really excited about the Patriots offense. So I wanted to ask you about the tight ends because Hunter Henry, I talked about him on my last pod. He was really solid two years ago, nine touchdowns. I attribute a lot of the fall off, if you will, to just like we put a lot of it on Matt Patricia with Kendrick Bourne, with Mac Jones, with the line, all that stuff. I put a lot of it on him as well. And then 
Gasecki, we know, is a jump ball guy. Contested catches, 15 of them two years ago. That was tied for second among tight ends, 17 in 2020. Only Darren Waller had more at the tight end position. So how do you think they try to utilize these guys together? Well, I think, you know, you're basically just going to keep trying to give defenses different looks. And what I think is nice about the way that they've layered the tight end position is sort of in not again to compare it to San Francisco, but what you're trying to do is I think they'll be able to put opponents into more basic defenses more often. Whereas before, like when Matt Patricia was the offensive coordinator, the defense sort of dictating personnel, they could get exotic because the Patriots were so vanilla. But now I think the Patriots, especially with the tight end position can stack the deck in their favor a little bit. All right. So then in terms of the receiver position, Tyquan Thornton, this organization, they use high draft capital on him, a second round pick. And from a Patriots perspective, when we saw this pick at the moment, you're excited four two eight forty, like all this stuff, you're drafting a weapon early. You love that. But then we see George Pickens goes two picks later to the Steelers. And we know that the Steelers are really good at drafting receivers. And last year, 801 yards, 15.4 yards per reception. That was eighth in the league. And we've seen how important these receivers are on cheap money contracts, right? Jefferson, Higgins, Chase, Debo, before he got his big deal. And they went to a Super Bowl when he was in San Francisco. Same thing with Chase and Higgins. That's part of it. Like the old school, we always talk about the quarterback in terms of the contract, it's the cheat code. Well, this receiver thing has kind of been a cheat code as well. So what do you think the ceiling is on Thornton? And do you think that the Patriots are going to look back at this and regret not taking Pickens? Or do you think that Thornton has a really big role in the offense this season? I think he can have a role. Again, like it's one of those things where O'Brien always kind of had a a burner uh, in his offenses. And I think, again, you know, you don't want to put everything on Patricia, but I think that we will historically be able to look back at what happened during that season and be like, why, why were the personnel, why were so much of the personnel deployed the way that they were? I think that O'Brien will have a better sense for how to put that speed component into the offense. And I think that it will sort of come full picture. It'll make a little bit more sense. Um, I saw Mac ripping it a little bit today, like uh, especially at the beginning of practice and, sort of letting the defaults fly a little bit. And again, I don't think this is going to be one of those things where it's going to look like Miami and it's going to look like Tua, but I do think that you need a sort of stylistic uh, compliment, guys who can play off of one another. And even if maybe speed is his only gift or he doesn't quite evolve his pickings, you can at least use him in a way to manipulate the offense. Like, and I'm not making a direct player comparison, but you look at like the Rams and they were like, okay, we have someone like Tutu Atwell, and all we need him to do is X. Uh, well, New England could maybe use him in a similar way where you can just manipulate a defense in a certain way he wasn't able to do a year ago. Yeah, I hope they get something out of him because, I mean, the speed is really enticing. And going back to last training camp, he was actually playing well, and he played well in their first preseason game. Then he has the injury, so hopefully Bill O'Brien can utilize him unlike Matt Patricia last season. So I'm excited to see what he can do. I just wonder if... George Pickens ends up being the significantly better player down the road, and the Patriots, of course, have had their issues as it pertains to drafting receivers early. All right, so the offensive line, Trent Brown, Bill Belichick said he was lighter than he's been. He's not really been heavily involved in the practices, been doing more of conditioning. And Cole Strange was banged up at practice on Monday. On Wenyu is on the pup list right now. They did pick up Riley Reef, an older player, of course. They have David Andrews, Connor McDermott to compete with. 
Reef. Now, the Patriots, they didn't get into the sweepstakes of these big tackles, right? Orlando Brown, Juwan Taylor, Mike McGlinchey. And this line last year, in terms of the pass block win rate, they were pretty bad. They were, what, 15th? And in the run block rate, they were 32nd, according to ESPN. And we saw Ramondre Stevenson last year, among qualifiers, average the most yards after contact. So they do bring in Adrian Clem. They move on from Patricia as the line coach as well. And the other component to this is Mac under pressure last year was really bad. The passer rating was 35.1, which was 38th out of 40 qualifiers. Only Kyler Murray and Zach Wilson are worse. Eight interceptions tied for the most. Completion percentage was 42.4%, which was 32nd out of those 40 qualifiers. So does the scheme adding a guy like Adrian Clem, does that make you feel at least somewhat better about the line? Or do you think that this is going to be an issue for this Patriots team that obviously the line's going to be a lot better because they want to run a lot with Ramondre. And obviously they'd like to utilize more play action with Mac Jones and Mac. Obviously he didn't perform exceptionally well when the pocket wasn't clean for him last season. So where are you on this group in terms of the offensive line? One of the things that I wanted to see today that I didn't really get a chance to, but it's sort of the best teams in the NFL are doing it on a week-in and week-out basis is they're creating easier blocks. And that's something that the Patriots did not do last year. And Hmm. this sort of goes back to the tight end question a little bit. Like, what is a great thing about someone like Mike Giusecki or really to have three tight ends that you like on the roster that are capable? It's that you're able to kind of manipulate the math and create like offensive linemen like to down block, right? They like to have leverage on their opponents. And so the 49ers on almost every snap, almost every guy has a block that's easier for him to make. And so New England wasn't doing that last year. I think that was pretty obvious and they didn't have the personnel to do it. I think even if the line isn't exactly where we want it to be talent wise, maybe you have some of those ancillary pieces and you have someone like O'Brien and you have, kind of a better institutional knowledge of how you can manipulate that math a little bit and create easier blocks because I mean, that's really the secret to all, all this stuff. I mean, it's why some of these teams are averaging, you know, four five, six yards of carry and just smoking people in the run game is, you know, they're, they're really just winning from a number standpoint and they're creating math in their favor. And I do think that the Patriots are capable of doing that for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. So a lot of that is going to be on Adrian Clem. And again, coming back to this whole theme of the offseason, Bill O'Brien to create those opportunities for this offensive line, because obviously the personnel now, I feel pretty good about the interior line, especially if on when you gets healthy, because he's been really good there. And you would think Cole Strange in his second year will be a lot better. And David Andrews has been a really solid player for this team for years now. But the tackle one is the one that would concern me the most. So hopefully these guys can get it right in terms of the scheme. And so then moving to the defense, Jack Jones had a great offseason. And then, of course, he was arrested on gun charges. And he's now due back into court on August the 18th for a probable cause hearing. So he's out there at Patriots practice. At first, at the beginning of camp, he wasn't lined up with the ones. Now he is lined up with the ones. This is just such a weird situation because what do the Patriots do here? Obviously, he's out there right now, but do you think we get something from the NFL after that probable cause hearing? Or do you think that this thing may drag on in terms of any sort of punishment that Jack Jones would receive from the league? Like, will they let the legal process sort of play out here? It's interesting. I mean, you know, you see teams handle it different ways, certainly. And, you know, I think if you're Belichick, that you know the secondary, probably that's, that's your biggest sort of comfort zone as a coach, right? And so, you know, would you be wasting reps 
you know, especially a coach who treats reps as valuable as Belichick, would you be wasting reps on a guy that you're not going to expect out there? And I'm not saying that anybody knows anything that they're not saying, but maybe do you have a case history? Maybe do you have an idea of how the NFL is going to handle it to give you a certain comfort zone? Because again, there's, there's teams that'll handle it both ways. There are teams that'll sideline these guys and exhaust some of the backups to sort of get them more reps. And there are teams that just treat this like, you know, it's going to happen. Maybe they're worried that he's going to miss reps in the future and want to get him, you know, installed before, you know, anything happens. And so I think there's right. kind of all sorts of different possibilities there, you know? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this whole thing sort of plays itself out because it did feel like, okay, Jack Jones had a good rookie season, but then he got himself into trouble at the end of the year where he showed up late in terms of not rehabbing the injury. So it was an issue at times last year. And when he was on the field, he was actually really good. So we'll see what happens with that. But on the other side, Christian Gonzalez, I think that anybody that complained about this pick from a Patriots perspective was just a Patriots fan or a media member trying to find something to complain about. It was clearly the pressing need for this defense. How high are you on Christian Gonzalez and what he can bring to this Patriots team with a defense that from a numbers perspective, they ranked out really well. The one issue that they had is they didn't have that lockdown corner. Do you think that Christian Gonzalez can be 80% of what a lockdown corner is in year one? It's a tough ask, right? I mean, like if you wanted to have him to have that same impact that maybe like Gilmore did when he came over from Buffalo, like I don't know if it's, if it's that level of, if it's that level of comfort right away, but um, there was that one throw where um, Mac made to Devontae Parker. It was this crazy, like one-handed grab by the sidelines. It was like a 15-yard pass today. And, you know, you look at it and you say, wow, that's an amazing catch. But then you think about it again and you say, okay, who is covering a veteran wide receiver that well that he essentially needed to do like a modified Odell Beckham catch just to get like a 15-yard first down and it was Christian Gonzalez and you know <laughs> then you kind of you know you go back and you say oh wow like you know and cornerbacks you know with very few exceptions right I mean Sauce Gardner was an exception last year at Jets camp you heard that from day one when you were there a lot of these guys are floating at this point you know what I mean and there is a lot of discomfort especially if you're Belichick and you like your defense to be as versatile as he is but you know if it comes down to it and he's marking veteran wide receivers that have a lot of snaps on them that well, you know, I I think it it bodes well, obviously it's just one rep, but you know, it wasn't one of those situations where we've seen him routinely get kind of blown out during camp at this point, you know? Yeah. I'm excited to see what he can bring. And the Patriots, it looks like it's proven correct, or they've been proven correct by letting JC Jackson walk, which I wasn't so sure about at the time because he was really good for this team, but clearly they knew more about the injury history. We'll see if it works out for the Chargers long-term, but they definitely needed to address this in the draft and hopefully Christian Gonzalez can be that guy for them. So in this division, the Bills, they haven't quite broken through yet, right? They obviously lost Von Miller last season, which was a big blow. And then the DeMar Hamlin situation, of course, but they had some weird stuff with Stephon Diggs in that playoff game and into the offseason. Allen was bad in that playoff game against Cincinnati, and if you look at the AFC right now, the Chiefs are the top dog, and then you have Cincinnati playing at a high level, and it feels like they've sort of passed the Bills. So do you think it's a more likely story this year that we're talking about the Bills back to being one of the elite teams in the AFC like they've been over the past couple years with the Chiefs and the Bengals competing for the conference, or do you think we could see them being in the same conversation as teams like the Ravens or the Dolphins or the Jets or maybe even the Jaguars who showed some promise last year? Like, which side are they closer to, the Chiefs or the Bengals or the rest of those teams? 
I just think the Bills as like a franchise just have to be completely and totally exhausted, you know? And I think they were running marathons the last few years. And even if, you know, I, I liken what happened to them last year to being a team that lost the Super Bowl because I do think that the emotional hangover was similar. I mean, they were universally believed to be the best team in the NFL. They're everybody's favorite team to go to the Super Bowl. And they were always viewed as that one step away. They made the move. And not only did they not get there, but there were all these kind of emotionally trying moments that sort of really challenged them, I think, and stretched them uh, pretty emotionally thin. And Sean McDermott is the kind of coach that he's a great coach, but he's a little bit like Bill in that, you know, emotionally, I don't think like, you know, he's maybe not as much of your, you know, your warm and fuzzy guy, you know what I mean? And so I think that it might be one of those situations where, you know, you have to just kind of figure out what side, you know, where these guys are going to land emotionally. And then you add in all the ifs, right? Stefan Diggs is another year older. Josh Allen is asked to do a lot in the run game, which is not a sustainable yeah. thing for a quarterback. You know, we saw him get hit in the shoulder or the elbow, I think it was last year down the stretch. And that certainly impacted his play. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was some of the teams that were playing them last year started taking like some of their bigger defensive tackles that were faster and using them as spies on Josh Allen. So not only are your, you know, not only is he getting hit a lot, but now he's also getting hit more consistently with players who are bigger than him. I mean, his advantage was always the size, but now you're getting him routinely hit by 300 pound guys when he's leaving the pocket. Uh, You know, and I just don't think it's sustainable for them. I think they're going to have to change a lot offensively if they want to survive in this division, which I think is going to be sort of like a vintage NFC East year where like a lot of these teams are going to regress a little bit. And like, it's going to be like, you know, last place in this division is eight and nine and first place is like 10 and seven. Hmm. Okay. So that brings me to the dolphins because Ramsey has the surgery. They'll have him back at some point later on in the season. I'm interested, though, because Tua last year, uh, 13.7 yards per completion first, 8.9 yards per attempt, that was first. And it really did look like they were onto something special until, of course, his injuries derailed the season. Now, this is a big if, but assuming Tua is healthy, where would you put them sort of in the hierarchy of this? And I know you mentioned how tough the division is, but where would you put them on terms of the hierarchy of the AFC? And like, again, this is the hypothetical that two is healthy. We don't know if that'll be the case, but let's assume he's healthy. I don't know why I said that because he's probably not going to be healthy, but if he's healthy, how good are the Dolphins? It's a good question. I mean, I would say assuming two is healthy and assuming that Tyreek Hill can hold up for an entire season as the player that he is in that offense, right? So, um, you know, I would put them, I guess, a tier below, like in the AFC, like they're below like the Ravens for me. Like I, you mm-hmm. have your Bengals, your Chiefs. When if Bengals, if we know that Joe Burrow is 100%, your Chiefs. And then, you know, I would almost put like, I would almost put like a line there and then start, um, another list down and, you know, I don't know, maybe like the at best, like maybe the sixth best team in the conference, if everything goes well, if everybody stays healthy and, you know, everything goes right for them, which, I mean, you know, that's a lot of ifs for Miami, which is why I've, I was kind of lukewarm on them a little bit this offseason. All right. And then the Jets, obviously they get the headlines with Aaron Rodgers. They're going to be on hard knocks and all that. And 
We've seen things that we've never seen from Aaron Rodgers, like he's taking less money. He seems like he's really happy. He's comparing Garrett Wilson to Devontae Adams and all that. But last year, the one thing with the Jets that sticks out, 30th in pass block grade, according to Pro Football Focus, 27th in run block grade. And Rodgers last season, like Mack, was actually really bad under pressure. He completed just 47% of his passage, which was 20th, four touchdowns, four picks. His yards per attempt, 19th, passer rating was 23rd. So he's entering his 40-year-old season. There's still issues in terms of the personnel with that offensive line. Is this an underrated part of the Jets' offseason, or do you think Rodgers rejuvenated to get into New York that that situation is going to be all right just because of who Aaron Rodgers is? I think behaviorally, he was always going to come, and he was always going to bring it to the Jets, right? Like, I think he was always going to be the leader that he wasn't believed to be in Green Bay. Like, because if you think about it, you're ending your career in the biggest media market in the world, and you know whatever you're going to do with the Jets is going to set yourself up for life after football. And so if you nail it from a personality standpoint, like, I don't know if he still wants to host Jeopardy, but if he does, I mean, <laughs> here's the perfect opportunity to, to go ahead and do that. I mean, you know, if he takes the Jets to the playoffs twice, he can host like ABC News and talk about whatever he wants to talk about. You know, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to stop him. But so I never thought that was going to be the problem. I agree with you. It's the offensive line gives me a little bit of pause. You saw what happened when David Bakhtiari wasn't there. And especially earlier in the year, the last two years, we've seen teams like, you know, that outside zone system has a lot of those sweeping bootleg plays. And we've seen teams just not respect that at all with Rodgers back there and just rush the quarterback. And and there's a couple games, I think it was two years ago, maybe the season opener, where the Saints beat them like 20-3 to three or something like that. And there was that wacky game where they got absolutely demolished. It might have been last year. But um, I think there could be more of that where if you can't protect him adequately, that offense doesn't really do a whole lot for him. It actually causes a little bit more of an issue, you know? Yeah, and yeah, I'm going to be fascinated to see how that thing works out. But it's a good point. I'm like, hey, you want to be really accessible in New York because maybe it provides you with more opportunities after your career is over. But hey, before I let you go, Connor, before I forget, because Ezekiel Elliott was sitting on the same side of the table as Mac, does that mean he's going to be a Patriot? I mean, it would fit into the Belichick ethos, right? Like he loves these kind of end of career veteran running backs with experience. He's had really good um, runs with some of these guys, really good stretches with some of these players. And I don't see why he wouldn't want someone like that. I mean, especially Elliot is a, is an apt and willing pass blocker. And he's also really good at the goal line. And I think he's good at getting you the extra yard. And I don't think that his play has fallen off the cliff so significantly that he can't do those very basic things for you. Now, what is his price tag? What are his expectations? You know, Everybody comes into an offseason banged up. What do the medicals really look like? I have no idea. But if all that stuff looks good, I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, any running back to me that's willing to pass protect, willing to stand back there and take hits, especially when you don't have a mobile quarterback, uh, I would say sign him up. So, I mean, looks good to me. Yeah, I'm all for it, too, especially considering it felt like towards the end of the season, Ramondre sort of wore down, and obviously Ezekiel Elliott would be a perfect number two back for this team. All right, that is Connor Orr, senior writer at Sports Illustrated, wrote the article up recently at Sports Illustrated, the 12 teams that could actually win the Super Bowl, which includes the Patriots, also has an article up after practice today 
Good vibes in Foxborough amid team's quiet era. Connor, thank you so much for the time, man. Great stuff, and enjoy the rest of your ride home, man. I hope you don't get stuck in too much traffic. Yeah, we're on the we're on the Cuomo now, so we're we're motoring. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. All right, one note before we leave. Bruce Arena was placed on administrative leave amid an investigation related to allegations that Arena made insensitive and inappropriate remarks. Now, we don't have many of the details right now. That hasn't been reported yet, but obviously not a good situation right now for the revolution, not a good situation for Bruce Arena. So we will keep you updated on that story as we get more information, but just not a lot to react to right now, just that we know that he is not with the team right now amid this investigation. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. We will hit those on Thursday. Also, if you want to email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 